This morning, we're going to be picking up in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we're not going to do the whole thing. Surprise, surprise. We're going to get through, hopefully, to verse 19. You know, I'll look at it occasionally, and when I start and go, I should get through the whole thing. And then as you get into it, there's just so much to dig into sometimes. And other times, it's like, man, I should probably do two chapters this morning because there's not enough <laughs> in my mind. But the study of this chapter that we're looking at this morning, the title is With the Spirit, With Understanding. With the Spirit, With Understanding. Just a refresher on 1 Corinthians, we're probably all experts now, but it was written by Paul to the church in Corinth that was in Greece. There was a saying, to live like a Corinthian, which was an untethered, an uncontrolled lifestyle. Uh, they were corrective letters, uh, and Paul didn't want them to be ignorant on Israel, on the spiritual gifts, and on Jesus' return. We saw recently about the Holy Spirit, His work, His giftings. And as I said before, chapters 12, 13, and 14, the world knows chapter 13, the famous chapter on love, but we, even in the church, take it out of the context of chapters 12 and 14. I like to think of it as an Oreo cookie, where you've got the two chocolate chapters, 12 and 14, with the cream in the middle, the tasty, delicious love in the middle, uh, or a sandwich. We were at the gun show yesterday, and one of the sellers said, how you doing? And I said, good, how's that sandwich? Because he had a big sandwich he was eating, and it looked good, and I was hungry, and he looked like he was enjoying it. He said it was good. But this is the sandwich. The meat of the spiritual gifts and how they're exercised, the gifts in 12, the exercise in 14, the meat is love. And so we can't forget that as we get into the study this morning, that the meat is love. And I love meat, and lunch will be after this, but... We looked at the body, the members, not membership, but parts, but limbs. Your parts don't sign a contract with you to be a part of your body. They just are a part of your body. We saw an eye can't be a leg, a leg can't be an eye, and they both need each other, whether they like it or not. And that God has set both the physical body parts in place, but he's also set the spiritual body parts in place. And what's his spiritual body? The physical church here on earth full of God's Spirit and needing a body to walk around the world, so to speak, and do the things of Jesus. That love of Christ, the agape love of God, is not a motto, it's not a creed, but it's an action and attitude toward God and one another. Remember, it's supernatural service. That when we step out to serve God, sure, we may use physical talents from time to time, draw a picture, write a story, whatever it may be, but that at the core of it, it's all supernatural service. Like we saw the deacons waiting tables or the apostles praying and teaching the word. It was equally in requirement of God's Holy Spirit. And aside from that, a little detour here, because sometimes when I read the scriptures, I think, has the church even read them? You know, I've read through the whole Bible a couple of times. Reading through it a year is crazy. I remember trying to do that years ago. Haven't tried since because it's tough. But has the church not even read the Bible? You might even ask me, have I read the Bible? Because there are so many things that even the church is confused about that honestly the Bible makes very plain. It makes very clear. I'll say it again. There are many things that even the church is confused about that the Bible makes plain. And I wonder why this is. Why are we confused about things that the Bible leaves no confusion about? I'm not talking about 
fringe things in the Bible, Nephilim and how certain things work. Just talking about simple things, about how the church works, how gifts are. If you remember, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And so we're going to open up with a bunch of Ephesians. It's almost going to be a study in Ephesians here for the rest of the intro to our chapter this morning. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 says, And God put all things under his feet, and that's Jesus, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And it's tempting to want to expound on these, but I'm just going to keep reading them. Ephesians 3, 3-7 says, How that by revelation God made known to me, that's Paul, the mystery, as I've briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace, according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Paul goes on in chapter four, he says, God himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets. Trust me, this will all make sense when we get into the chapter, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ." from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body and the edifying of itself in love. He goes on later. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification? You're going to hear that word a lot today. We'll explain it later. That it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And one last passage in chapter 5 says, Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but instead be filled with the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. For as the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. For Christ is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her, with the uh, washing of the water by the word, that Jesus might present her to himself. It's talking about God and the church. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, his flesh, his bones, this is a great mystery, Paul says, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. 
and I like that part, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present to her, to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or blemish. That the church needs to read the word. The church needs to be washed by the word. And if the church isn't reading the word, the church is going to be dirty. If we're not reading the word, if we're not studying the word, our lives are not going to be holy. They're going to be blemished. They're going to be spotted. When we go to be presented before Jesus at heaven, when we go to be presented before Jesus in prayer, what are we wearing? Are we wearing jammies, spiritual jammies? Are we wearing the spiritual clothes and we were outside in the mud? Well, we're going to get dirty going through this life. We're going to sin. We're going to mess up. We're going to step in something we shouldn't have stepped in. But guess what? The way to wash that off is not by works. It's not by time. It's by washing of the water of the word. And God, this morning, we pray that you would wash us in your word. God, that even when we wash ourselves, we don't know where to put the soap. Cece wouldn't know where to put the soap if she was bathing herself. She would eat it instead of washing her body with it. God, so wash us in the water of your word this morning by your spirit, with understanding, with truth, with the gifts that you've given to each of us. God, give us understanding by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's pick up 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. So verse 1 says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. And he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification, right? So edification just means building up. It means we're fixing things that are broken. We are putting new stones and new levels in. We're edifying. We're building up. We're repairing. We're making stronger. We're making better. But he says this. He says, pursue love. And that word pursue means to follow, to run swiftly after. You ever run? I remember as a kid, the ice cream truck would come around and you'd run swiftly after the ice cream truck to make sure they stopped. Or the bus. If you were late for the bus in the morning. So we need to run swiftly after what? Love. Well, what love? Well, as we looked at last week, agape love. That word is agape. It's God's love. Sometimes it's translated as charity, but I think it gets lost in our day and age of charities. But it's agape love. God's holy love. Selfless love. Um, the love that only comes from God. He says, pursue them and desire spiritual gifts. Desire means to burn with zeal, heated, earnestly. Ever get in a heated conversation? That's the, or uh, in love with somebody, right? Your, 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 your eyes are, ah, you know, the little emoji with the hearts. That's the way we should be for spiritual gifts. And that's the things of the Spirit. The word isn't even spiritual gifts. It's this uh, pneuma statica or whatever it is in Greek. But it's the things of the Spirit, things of the Holy Spirit. It means to be governed by the Spirit of God. Are you governed by the Spirit of God? 
You remember Jacob in the Bible when God changed his name to Israel? Remember what that meant? It meant governed by God. So as believers, we go from our fleshly life to having the Spirit in us and given a new life, we become now governed by God. Our lives are not our own. Our own spirit doesn't dictate where we go, but God's spirit should dictate where we go. This word is also pertaining to the wind or breath. And we've got some winds from the southwest coming today and tomorrow. They're supposed to be pretty strong. Things not tied down are going to go with that wind. I put the trash can in last night because it looked like they were going to be, it was a little windy last night, but I put it in there. And I started looking at the trailer and I'm like, how much is this going to blow? And I'm kind of glad that it's coming from that direction, from the back end, so I can't really get under and lift up the trailer if it came from this side. But where do we go? John 3, 8, Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Just like that wind comes and goes, we kind of know because of the forecast, that's the way we should be. Are we tied down to the world that when God's wind blows, we don't go flying away with it? Because anything outside the trash can is going to go flying away. If there are toys outside, they're going to go flying away. If there's a sail outside, it's going to blow that away. Like we met uh, at the gun show yesterday, an older guy, gentleman, a veteran who served on uh, the aircraft carrier Intrepid. And I heard him, overheard him talking to someone. I said, did you serve on the Intrepid? He said, yes. And he told me about it. I said, I used to visit that all the time as a kid in New York City because there's a museum there. And they had planes on it. it was, every time you go, you'd see it and take it for granted. But he said that it sailed into Pearl Harbor under sail power because it was so damaged, right? That the wind was even able to move that giant aircraft carrier. But when God's wind comes, do we move? Do we flap a little bit? Are we carried away with his wind? Are we afraid to be carried away by God's wind? Where is he going to take us? Where is we going? You don't know. You may not know. But you know where that wind is coming from. It's coming from heaven. It's coming from God, and it's exciting. We watched those guys who jumped out of the helicopter with the wingsuits and fly through the canyons. It's scary at first, but then the more you watch it, at least for me, I go, the more I want to do it. <laughs> and I think sometimes that's the way it is with God's spirit. You go, oh, I don't, this is scary, but the more you think about it, isn't that not the life that God intends for us? If he's a good God, isn't he going to bring us to good places and do awesome things in us and through us and around us? My wife shared utmost for his highest with me this morning. It was great. And I remembered it, but I haven't read it in many years. And it says this, It was Paul's delight to spend his life for God's interest in other, in other people. And he did not care what it cost. But before we will serve, we will stop to ponder our personal and financial concerns. Well, what if God wants me to go over there? And what about my salary? And what is the climate like there? Who will take care of me? A person must consider these things. That's what we say, right? I think about if God brings us to Japan one day, I go, I don't like fish at all. What are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> especially raw fish. But all that is an indication that we have reservations about serving God. But the Apostle Paul had no conditions or reservations. Paul focused his life on Jesus Christ's idea of a New Testament saint. That is, not one who merely proclaims the gospel, but one who becomes broken bread and poured out wine in the hands of Jesus Christ for the sake of others. Think about that today. That's what we're going to think about. It's about others. The gifts are for others. And Paul says, I desire that you seek these gifts and desire them, 
but especially that you may prophesy. That you may prophesy. Basically, if we have to choose, choose prophecy. If there's all the gifts laid out before we looked at, right? Healings, miracles, teaching, apostleship, administrations. Choose prophecy. And that there's a difference between tongues and prophecy. They both use the tongue. They both involve language. They both involve words. They both speak about the things of God in one way or another. But tongues, the difference is, tongues is you to God. Or tongues is me to God. And this isn't a tongue, but remember where the source of true prayer comes from. In Romans 8, 26 or 27, he says, Likewise, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, uppercase S, also helps in our weaknesses. That's a great thing to think about. That we're weak. We don't need to be strong before God. And we can be absolutely weak and broken before Him. And who helps us? The Holy Spirit. For we do not know what we should pray as we ought to. That's a good one. Sometimes you don't know what to pray about. And that's okay. Especially when it's a hard situation. You don't know. You might be asking and asking amiss. But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. God wills it. God wants, God said, and the Holy Spirit were talking, I guess, and they willed that the Holy Spirit would pray for us when we need it. God prays for you. Jesus prays for you. The Holy Spirit intercedes for you between God because he is God and he's within us. I don't know about you, but there's times in our lives when things are so overwhelming, so hard, so weakness-inducing. There's been times when I've been on the floor just groaning before God, crying. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And a lot, of, honestly, part of that was when I became saved. I don't necessarily remember what I prayed to God, but I know that I asked Him to forgive me. And the Spirit, even then, was interceding for me. Oh, I don't know what to pray. I've lost this loved one. This thing has happened. I've messed up so bad. God prays. God understands when we groan and we don't know what that, oh, you know, when you, you stub your toe and you're like, oh. And you ask, what happened? Because <laughs> you don't know what happened. You just heard them scream, scream out in pain. God knows exactly what happened. He understands the cries. Just like a mom after a while, we'll understand the cries of her child, what they mean. I'm walking around, uh, uh, I don't know, she's crying. And Ash goes, oh, she's tired. <laughs> right? A mom understands. Same thing with God. And this isn't taught. You can't learn tongues in a class. There's classes out there that teach you to babble. Accord. Honda Accord. Babbling with the physical mouth is not a manifestation of God's Spirit and a language of heaven, and a language of love, and a language of your heart towards God. I have nicknames for you guys because I love you. I don't just babble and they come out randomly. They came out of a place of love. The same thing with tongues. It comes out of a place of love towards God. Not babbling poetry. But when we do speak in tongues, when the gift is given and we are able to speak in that language towards God, it edifies us. It edifies you. When you speak towards God in a tongue, it strengthens you. It comforts you. It encourages you. 
You know, I was, I, I believe I've had the gift of tongues since early on in being saved. I struggle with it a lot because I had no one to kind of show me the ropes on it in a way. But no one needed to, to teach me. There are times when I prayed to God and a language just comes out and bubbles out. And the first couple times I was like, is that really it? <laughs> am, I just, am I just making this happen? I don't, I, you know, there was all these fears and concerns, even though deep down I knew it was God. And over the years of praying with it from time to time, especially in those times of trouble, especially in times when I'm overwhelmed, whether it's a good overwhelming, I'm joyful for what God has done for me, having a baby, being forgiven, whatever it is, or there's times when I'm sad and I'm just broken before him. A lot of times it comes out in worship, in my personal worship time. But it's been the same language. It's been the same, not phrases, but I hear syllables and sounds that are clearly a language between me and God. And I don't know what each syllable means. I don't know what each word means. But most of the time, as I'm praying and as I'm worshiping and as I'm speaking in tongues to him by myself or with my wife or even with my family around, a lot of times I do it under my breath because it's between me and God. I'm not here to weird anyone out or take the focus off him with it. It just comes out and I feel the need to, to speak to him. And I feel like it's this deepest, most loving special intimacy with God that I don't have with anybody else. I've got great friends like Mario and Pastor Vinny and Johnny and other guys that I talk to and my wife. But I never have the same deep emotional heart-to-heart connection that I do with God in prayer time. And, it's, and not especially in tongues. It's, I don't think it replaces regular prayer, right? Understanding prayer. But there's this intimacy there that I'm trying to convey that is so deep and personal and holy. And as I do it, I don't, I don't think, I wonder what I said to God. I'm praying, and as it's coming out, even ever watch on TV when they have an interpreter? I've watched interviews with foreign leaders, and you'll see the foreign leader speak in their language, and over it you'll hear the interpreter says, well, then we invaded this country for this reason and that. You know, they, they speak English over it. It's almost like that. I'll hear a voice, or I'll hear the answer of what I'm saying to God. And it's always to God. It's never, as we'll see in a minute, thus saith the Lord. It's always me speaking to God, giving Him praise, thanking Him, extolling how wonderful God is. It's a language from here to heaven, to earth up. Now prophecy is the reverse. It's God to us. It's heaven down. It's not some new word that cannot be found in the Bible, right? It might be a new arrangement of English or a new sentence structure, but it's not saying something anything different than what the Bible would say. You could find the truth of it in the pages of Scripture. It's not a new page being glued on the end is what I'm trying to say. It's potentially a very old word. It could be Genesis 1.1. It can also be about the future, like Revelation. But usually, in my experience, it's more of a direct and specific word. It's understandable. It's, the word is actually related to teaching. Uh, but it's, in my opinion, it's more of a rhema versus a logos to confuse you with 
complicated words. Let's take the confusion out of those two words away. The word for word is rhema and logos. Logos is the written, the plain word. What God's word says on its surface, what the Ten Commandments are, what the doctrines are, is logos. It's plain, it's written word, like a logo. You see Coca-Cola on my glass. That's logos. It's plainly seen. It's a logo. You understand what it is. You understand what it means. It means that dirty water that dad likes to drink. That's soda. But rhema is really this deeper heartfelt thing. It's, the, it's what does it mean for me? What does it mean for the church? As you're studying the Bible, understand the logos. Understand what the Bible means. But expect that as you're studying the Bible or even listening to a message, that God will give you a word of rhema in it. That if you're going through something, you know, I always like to use this example, but the logos is to don't steal, right? And maybe you don't think you're stealing anything, but as you're listening to a message or reading the Ten Commandments, you realize, oh, I've been stealing in doing this thing and whatever it is, right? Maybe it's not working when you should be working. Maybe it's taking something from your brother or sister or whatever it is. You're doing something and you realize, oh, that's stealing. And it's personal to your life, right? Someone else might look on to you and say, that's not stealing. You're entitled to that. But you know in your heart, because of God's spirit, because of the rhema word, that that thing is wrong for you. You're not necessarily going to get up and preach on a pulpit that the church at large shouldn't do that. Maybe they shouldn't. But you know for you, that is wrong. Because God's word gave you a rhema about it. But this prophecy is for edification, exhortation, and comfort. And it edifies the church. Remember, tongues edify the speaker. Prophecy edifies the hearer. Right? Edification, that building up. Exhortation, that encouragement to keep going. The, the, the telling you, go in this direction. Do this thing. The correction, the instruction. But also, prophecy can be comforting. You know, we read Revelation, and I think we're comforted by it to some degree. Yes, we're going to heaven. Yes, we're not going to be here for it. But to the unbeliever, that shouldn't be comforting at all. It's the same prophecy. When I read Revelation before I became a believer, it was not comforting to me at all. It was like, this is happening. The world is getting set up for it. Jesus is coming back soon, and you're not ready. And then when I was ready by accepting the Lord, I loved Revelation even more. <laughs> Because not only did it help bring me to the truth, but it is the truth. And it's exciting to see the things of God come to pass. But it's also heartbreaking to know what the world and unbelievers are facing because of their choice to reject the truth of Jesus. But Paul wishes that everyone does both. Paul's not like, I wish you guys did this gift. I wish you guys had this gift. This, these are only for you and these are only for you. He says, I wish you both prophesied and spoke in tongues. I want you to have all of the gifts. They're not mutually exclusive. We can desire them all. God says, Paul says, desire them all. At Christmas, or at birthdays, or even when my kids just desire something good, like spending their allowance on a Lego figure, do I not want to give it to them when it's good? Do I not want them to have them all? when they write two things down or 10 things down or 20 things down on their list for birthdays and Christmas so the family knows what to get them? And as a good dad, do I not intend to get them both? You know, my oldest daughter Mia just had a birthday. She had a bunch of things on her list. 
And I got her a couple of them. Even though I was like, this is more money than I intended to spend. I wanted to have her both. And there's even more things I want her to have that are good things that would be good for her that I still intend to get her. But I just didn't get it for her now because I need to spread the wealth out over the year. Otherwise, she'll have all the cool things, but we won't have soup. And that's for all my kids. I intend for them to have good things. And not just one thing, but many things. In a sense, I want to spoil them because I love them. That's the same thing with God. God doesn't go, oh, you know what, I gave you a spiritual gift last week. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, just, I don't got any more for you, buddy. No. Guess what? The more we ask, the more we seek, the more we knock, God's going to keep giving. His cup never runs out. He wants our cup to be overflowing. Does he not? And the key to both prophecy and tongues, in a sense, is interpretation. Prophecy comes with natural interpretation, natural understanding, that it's made plain. Not like a plain bagel, but it's made simple to understand. And if prophecy is not clear in its actual telling, it's made clear through teaching. If prophecy is not clear in actual telling, it's made clear through teaching. And the Bible does this all the time with prophecy. It'll say things like in Revelation or in Daniel or Ezekiel or earlier in the scriptures, and it reveals them a few verses later. It will explain them all. Jesus with parables, Matthew 13.10 says, The disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. Though there are certain things that Jesus would reveal to everybody, but he wouldn't fully reveal to those who were afar off. Those whose hearts weren't ready. That's the same thing with prophecy. People will read prophecy and go, I don't understand this. Well, if they were ready to understand it, they would have just read a few verses later and saw that, oh, it explains it. And that's okay. It can be tough. It can be intimidating, especially as a young believer. And on the flip side, tongues interpretation will always be something speaking to God. Like I said, it is never thus saith the Lord. When someone speaks in tongues, the interpretation is never says, God says, you must give up, or you must, or this is the truth of the Lord. No, tongues is not prophecy. And prophecy is not in tongues. They are different and separate and unique and holy and useful gifts. But they are not interchangeable. Tongues is speaking to God. And to be honest, even in prophecy, it's rarely, thus saith the Lord, if someone comes to you and says, I'm a prophet of God, and thus saith the Lord, well, maybe listen. If they're right in front of you, don't necessarily have to be rude about it. Because maybe they are, you don't know. But listen, I've told stories before about people giving me a word, or people giving my pastor a word, and sometimes it's very spot on. Sometimes it's a word of knowledge. Other times it's, maybe they meant well. But I, just, I don't understand these, these people who go around the prophet ministry. I think they're in it for the prophet, not to be a prophet. Because unless you're Elijah incarnate, and even then, he didn't go around every day saying, thus saith the Lord. How many years was it between certain things that he would say? It's just who he was. He didn't make a ministry of it, make posters of himself. He just lived his life and listened to God, and it was evident he was a prophet, and that was his office. 
And like I said, it's never anything different than what the scripture, in a sense, already says. But sometimes prophecy is that direct, like, this scripture is for you. This scripture is for the church. And sometimes it's not even, you know, maybe I'm teaching or someone's teaching. And the prophecy just comes out from the teaching. And it's clear that this is the word for the church. Sometimes it's a warning for the world. Does not God use that all the time in prophecy? He warns his people, but he's also warning the world around them of what's to come. Who got the dreams in Egypt? It wasn't Joseph. Pharaoh got the dreams. But he had to go to Joseph for the interpretation. And it was to save not only Joseph, not only Egypt, but the entire world around them. Let's go on. Verse 6. It says, But now, brethren... If I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Even things without life, whether flute or harp, whether they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in sounds, how will be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. We'll stop there. The prophet, right? P-R-O-F-I-T, F-I-T, right? Profit is to make money off of something or to gain something. It means to be assist or to be useful or advantageous. It's a profit to us. The profit of prophesying is greater than the profit of tongues. So if you were a businessman and somehow you could make money off the spirit, this is, <laughs> people do this and it's crazy. Because they're not really, they're, it's not really making money off the things of God. But if we were just to look at this from a business point of view, if you were to invest in one currency over the other, if you were to invest into one business over the other, invest in the business of prophecy versus the gift of tongues, because there's a greater spiritual return out of the gift of prophecy than there is out of tongues. If you can make $10 from putting $1 in, wouldn't you rather do that than making $2 after putting $1 in? Right? If I can buy a car and flip it and make twice the money, it's much better for me in the end. And there was a show called The Prophet, P-R-O-F-I-T. <laughs> he was this guy who would come in and basically look at the business and kind of prophesy to the business in a worldly sense of what they were doing wrong and what they needed to be right to encourage them, to edify them, to comfort them, but also correct them and get them going on the right path to then make money. And he would invest in them and, and come out uh, on the other side. It was a, an interesting show. But we need to profit off this, off, revel, off prophecy. And the word is revelation or apocalypsis, where we get the word apocalypse, like the end times is the apocalypse, right? But that word is interesting. It's, it means laying bare. It means making naked. It means disclosure of truth. It means instruction concerning things before unknown. 
made visible to all. Manifestation, appearance. I think that's why governments hate certain social networks, hate free speech, because it makes things naked. It makes things that were not known, known to all. It makes things that weren't truth, now the truth. It exposes things for what they are. And that's why free speech is so important. And that's what revelation is. That's what apocalypse is. That's what the prophecy is. It's making things known that were previously unknown. The revelation of Jesus Christ. These things exist in the future for us. That God understands them, but we didn't totally understand them until revelation came to be. And even says in the last days that things will be made known, will be understood. And the word knowledge, gnosis, like we talked about gnosko, was that intimate knowledge, gnosis, is general intelligence. It's understanding. And I think general intelligence and understanding is missing from our world today. It means this deeper and more perfect knowledge and more advanced knowledge, especially of things lawful and unlawful for Christians. Again, what the church misses. It's moral wisdom as seen in right living. I think the definition of these words alone could get someone canceled in the world today. But as <laughs> there was a movie my kids like, uh, Pacific Rim, and they say, we're canceling the apocalypse. It was like the leader's big speech before they went out to the final battle. Well, the world can't cancel the apocalypse. You can't cancel the truth. You can't cancel what's coming. And that's what the enemy thinks. He thinks he can cancel Jesus' return and beat him. But, I mean, has he not read? <laughs> has he not seen? He's lost already. That's the best part of prophecy. I can't wait. But prophesying means prophecy, discourse emanating from divine inspiration. That it's not just man's wisdom, it's God's wisdom imparted to man. It's declaring the purposes of God, whether by admonishing the wicked or comforting the afflicted, the definition says. It's especially of the predictions of the work of which to set apart to teach the gospel and things that will accomplish the kingdom of Christ. That prophecy is about those things to rebuke the wicked, to encourage the righteous, and to set the things of heaven on earth. Like Jesus said, we pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And prophecy is the messenger of that will, so to speak. And teaching, didache, if I'm saying that right, it means doctrine. Teaching that which is taught. The act of teaching in a religious assemblies of Christians. The speak in the way to teach. In distinction from other modes of public speaking. There's a difference between Bible teaching and history teaching. And history teaching can benefit a Bible teaching, but Bible teaching is supernatural and imparts something, not head knowledge like physical teaching does, but spiritual knowledge. It teaches your spirit what is right and wrong. Ephesians 4.11 He gave himself some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. That pastor-teacher is the same gift and calling. That you can't be a pastor unless you teach, and you can't teach unless you're a pastor. And it doesn't necessarily mean the office, but it means that these gifts go hand in hand. That a pastor is a herdsman, a shepherd, who uh, he whose care and control of others have committed themselves, uh, whose precepts they follow. Uh, you follow a leader, right? The presiding officer, manager, director of an assembly, right? The Christ, so as Christ is the head of the church and overseers of the Christian assemblies, right? That a pastor goes in hand in hand. That it's another study. 
But if someone is teaching you the things of God, they should also be able to help you live a life that's godly. They should also have a life that you can follow that's godly. If someone has a life that they're going to help you about the things of God, well, they need to be versed in the things of God. They need to be able to teach you about the things of God as well. We saw the order in the church. First apostles, then prophets, then teachers. The plant the church, the word to build up the church, and the word to instruct and guide the church. And Paul goes on and he talks about music, that there should be a distinction in sound, the difference of the notes. We watch some videos here with the kids, these people who turn a, a famous song into something just on the piano or just on another instrument, and it lights up and it goes, and it's really interesting to watch how fast these people can move their hands across the keys and hit all these notes and all these distinct notes that make sounds and the way they harmonize and work together. It's amazing. I see my kids learning how to play music and I love it. But I can also remember being a kid and being in school and in elementary school and having to go to the auditorium and hear the, the kids who have been learning instruments try and play an orchestra together. <laughs> you know, some of the kids would know how to play, some of the kids wouldn't, and they would all clash and kind of be, Ugh. and even parents at parent night would be, yay. They were happy to see their kid learning, but they weren't there for the music. They were there for the child. And that's part of growing. There's nothing wrong with that. But even when we speak, we need to speak clearly and not mumble if we want to be understood. And Paul says, if the trumpet blows with an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? That uncertain sound, it's not manifest. It's indistinct. It's uncertain. It's obscure. Was that the trumpet? Did you guys hear mom calling us for dinner? Did my alarm go off this morning? Did you hear it, babe? You know, like we wonder, is it the indistinct sound? Was the phone under the pillow? Was we too far away? And the trumpet in battle, a trumpet was used for battles, feasts, kings, and even revelation. I think when the trumpet, last trumpet sounds and we're raptured, I think we're going to hear it really clearly. We're not going to go, is that the rapture? I can remember first getting saved and we had church in a, above a dentist office in an office. And uh, next, right out the window was one of those fire sirens. Anytime the fire got a call and the fire department had to come and it would go off all out. And sometimes we'd be praying or worship or teaching and all of a sudden it would kick on and go on. And your heart would jump for a second and go, it's the rapture. <laughs> and go, oh no, it's just the volunteer fire department for Chester, New York. <laughs> But who will prepare for battle? Again, that's, I don't think government likes free speech for that because if we all know what's really going on, we're all going to oppose them and stop them from doing their plan. And that's why the world hates free speech and wants to lock down the internet and wants to lock down children's thought. And in the church, it's no wonder we're weak. We're confused. We're caught up in the world and doing things that the world does. Others leaving the faith and so-called deconstructing it. It's because an uncertain sound has been playing in the pulpit for decades. Centuries, maybe. Would we preach a certain sound of the king and his kingdom from our pulpits, from our positions in life, from our personalities even? Or is it an uncertain sound? When people are around us, do they, is it muffled by our behavior? 
Is it muffled by the other things we say? Is it muffled by the language that comes out of our mouth? Is it muffled by our unwillingness to fly the flag, so to speak, of our king and country? That's not what God desires. God desires that a certain sound go out into the world because it's his word. And that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to muffle the word because God's word, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? And that sound needs to be easy to understand. The disciples were unlearned fishermen. Even they looked around and people heard, aren't these guys fishermen? They didn't even graduate the eighth grade and they're out fishing and they're teaching. What, what are they speaking? How are they doing this? It's God's spirit. And Paul was very educated, but he didn't use complicated words. Sure, he taught deep things, but he wanted them to be understood. And don't get me wrong. I respect many men's education, eloquence, and calling, especially among the different denominations. God uses them big time from what I can tell. But some of these groups seem to be really caught up in fancy wordplay, using heady arguments and big words that you have to look up and have to write down and pour over the sentence ten times just to try and figure out what they're saying spiritually. And I think to some degree, to use a different kind of wordplay, they leave the layman in the church and a lurch. A lurch is to be left by the side of the road in a ditch by the wayside behind. And if a construction worker comes in, a child comes in, and hears these teachings, what do they walk away with? Do they feel edified? Or do they feel put down? I'm, I'm too dumb to understand. I don't understand the things of God. I, I can't speak words like this person. Or I stutter, or whatever it is. Because God wants all of us to understand Him. He says He wants us all to be like children even. That's why children's ministry, youth ministry is such a great training, such a great calling. That you know, If you can't teach the kids, how can you teach the adults? It shouldn't be the other way around. Because God wants us to understand Him, His will, His love, and His plan. Especially for us. And there's a pastor, a Calvary Child pastor, he's got a ministry called The Word Made Plain. I think that's a perfect title. If you're teaching, the word should be made plain. That's the aim. And that should be our aim when we come to the scriptures. Understand it plainly. And we're coming to the close here. I know we're going a little long. But Paul also talks about languages and foreigners. You don't understand each other. That's what happened at the Tower of Babel, right? There's certain languages that use clicks to communicate in Africa, from what I understand. But Paul says they all have significance. Every character, every letter, every sound, every syllable, even every tone. In Chinese, you could say the same word like this or like this. And it means two different things from what I understand. Even in English, we have nuance and sarcasm that other languages might not understand. The way you say something changes the way it means. That there's a lot of nuance in language. And what Paul wants us to take away here, I believe, and what God's Spirit ultimately wants us to take away, is that God doesn't want us to be foreigners to the heavenly language. God doesn't want us to be uh, distant to words of heaven, to the love. And unfortunately, there's Christianese as well. If you come around the church, get saved, you'll hear people say different things that are very 
not understandable by the world. And I'm struggling to think of one now, but I'm sure you can think of one and tell me later. But God wants us to freely converse about the things of God in heaven and not be left confused. We should be able to talk to each other about the things of God and walk away with more understanding. Whether it's just understanding that we disagree with their position or we understand things better than things of God, but not to be left confused like the Tower of Babel. Not to be an outsider because we're made one together in Jesus. There's no cliques, there's no groups, there's no friends. We are all one in Jesus. In verse 12, Paul says, Let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel in the world. We seek degrees, we seek promotion, we seek profit, whatever it is. Why? To benefit ourselves. But in the church, it should be opposite. When we desire the gifts of God, when we desire the calling of God, it's not to edify ourselves. It's not to give ourselves a position, a platform, a kingdom. It's to build up the kingdom of God. It's to build it up in others and each other and see others do well. That's what the ministry of teaching is for, the edifying of the body, that the body might go out and do the work of the ministry. But they, the body might not understand it, might not understand the things of God, so God uses the role of pastor-teacher to help them understand it. And back in Ephesians 5, says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy without blemish. I read it again on purpose. Because that's the point of church. Church meetings, reading the Bible, is that we would be presented back to God. And Paul says to pray for interpretation. Because the tongue is a gift, and the interpretation of that tongue is just as much a gift. That interpretations is a gift. Because there's a blessing of the Spirit, but not of your mind until there's interpretation. Like I said, you might even feel crazy, unsure, uncertain until you understand. And let's go on. Verse 15 through 19, and we'll wrap up quickly. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with understanding. It's lowercase s spirit, from your spirit, he's saying. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies in the place of the uninformed say, Amen, at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. So as Paul says, what is the conclusion then? The spirit and understanding. It's God's spirit and our spirit coupled with understanding of the things of God. They're not apart from each other. It's not some crazy religion where you do things that are wacko and out there and have no meaning. Or even if they have meaning, they're clearly understood. That was a problem with the Catholic Church for centuries. They would teach in Latin. They would say, the Bible is not for you to understand. You can understand it. Only the priesthood can understand it. No, no, no. That's probably the greatest part of the Reformation is getting the Bible in the hands of everybody. Because God's Word is for you. And it's for free. Well, Paul says, if you pray in tongues, you go to sit down for dinner, and you pray in a tongue thanking God for dinner, that's fantastic. But everyone around you is going, what just happened? What's he even talking about? Is it about dinner? Is it about me? Is he worried about something? Did he have a stroke? 
You know, you don't, you don't know. And Paul says the other guy can't agree with you. Can't say amen. Is left confused. Is left on the outside. And what do we want in prayer? We want amen. It means let it be, let it be done. We agree together. When we say amen, it's not just a word we say together. We're saying agreeing together in prayer to God. This is our corporate prayer to God. We all agree, God, please let this happen. And Paul was not a stranger to tongues. He's not degrading the gift. He says he prays with them more than anybody else. But he says in the church, I don't do it. In the assembly, he says five words of understanding is better than 10,000 tongues. That a short sentence of five words, it's not even a haiku, right? Is better than roughly an hour. I looked up, what was the average speaking? It's about 150 words per minute. So it would be 66 minutes if you wanted to say 10,000 words. So we're not quite at 10,000 words yet. Maybe 8,700 by now. I don't know. And hopefully they were with understanding. And not that we don't use tongues in church. Not that there's a time and a place for it, as we'll see later on in the next section. I didn't want to rush into that because there's so much to unpack here. But we'll see that there's a way to do tongues in church that's orderly. There's a way to prophesy in church that's orderly. But at a certain limit, it says, nope. That's not orderly anymore. Because the activities in the church, the gifts of the Spirit, the bond of peace and love are all to edify, all to encourage, all to comfort. If I'm praying in tongues later at dinner, my family's not going to be edified by that. They might think, oh, cool, that's tongues. Maybe that's what it sounds like. Maybe I'll try it. But that's as far as it goes. The conclusion to this message, earnestly seek the gifts. Earnestly seek to exercise them and as we'll see how to do it in order next time, earnestly seek to understand the will of our Lord and make it plain to all those around us, both unbelieving and believing. We'll see that, that there's a way that tongues and prophecy work for both the believer and the unbeliever and not the other way around. Again, there's this difference of tongues and prophecy here. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that, God, it would go forth from here, that, God, you'd edify us and encourage us and instruct us and use us and send us out and set us apart that the world might understand your love for them as we understand your love for us. God, obviously we don't understand it. It's beyond comprehension, but the point that we know, we believe, we love, we've experienced, we, we have you. God, let the world have you and let them come to faith by your word and through our lives and by your spirit most of all. We ask God in Jesus' name, amen. So may God bless you and keep you and his face shine upon you. There is a vineyard of the with all our troubles left behind the door we drink first light until